0: Hello, and welcome to Driverless. I'm your host, Zach Adams. Today's episode is part two of our series featuring Professor Choi. Professor Choi is a Harvard-educated lawyer who is now a jointly appointed professor at Ohio State University's Moritz College of Law and Department of Computer Science and Engineering. Our episode today picks up where last week's left off and furthers the discussion between Professor Choi and I concerning autonomous vehicles, tort liability, and data privacy. I really enjoyed having an extended discussion with Professor Choi and hope to be able to replicate this format with some of our upcoming guests this year. As always, you can contact us at at underscore driverless on Twitter or driverless at com. Thanks for listening and let's get rolling to today's episode of Driverless.
1: Hi, this is Todd, producer for this episode of Driverless. We appreciate your joining us and apologize in advance for the sound quality on parts of the interview with Professor Choi. It was our first remote interview and contained some imperfections, but the content is terrific. Thanks for joining us.
0: As we progress, you know, as more autonomous vehicles come on the road and um, we're dealing with more autonomous vehicles and human driver interaction, what do you think the, the right level of tort reform is? You know, kind of, we have this this laissez faire approach right now, where you know there's really not a lot of people sticking there, they're flagging the sand and saying this is what we think it should be because they want to promote innovation, but then you have other people calling for heavy regulation because they're kind of saying, well, what about the safety? You know, of our citizens, and and we've got some high profile accidents that people think I wouldn't have done that, and why is this testing, you know, running amok? What do, what do you think about that as, as someone who's really kind of delved into the uh, tort aspects of this field.
1: Well, tort reform implies that there is some rule to start with. Um, right now, I think that there's an absence or a, a vacuum of authority. Um, and so the real challenge here is the uncertainty. Right? You talk to people who are working in this space, and they say, I have no idea what the answer is going to be. Right? Is it going to be total crushing liability, or is it going to be no liability at all? total immunity um, and people don't know how to answer that question so it's not so much tort reform as creating a set of guidance sure. um, that will allow this technology to be uh, to, to reach uh, commercialization um, I would say in terms of the you know is it going to be heavy regulation or is it going to be laissez faire um, I think the answer is neither okay right? it, and you have a cyclical tendency if you go too far in one direction you have a backlash and you pull back um, and we've seen this um, in multiple uh, waves so you had the Lochner era where it was completely laissez-faire mm-hmm. and then you had that followed by a products liability era where you had um, very heavy regulation right um, lots of liability followed by an insurance crisis in the 80s um, and tort reform right the sort of uh, you know we have to cap liability um, followed by now we're sort of in this maybe in this new era where we're talking about universal health care and universal basic income and uh, you know maybe it's going back in the other direction i don't know right mm-hmm. um but it's this balancing right what we really need is um some way to distinguish uh the those sort of the wrongful cases from the ones where we think well um, yes something bad happened uh, but nonetheless we we don't think it was so bad that there has to be you know, liability.
0: And what do you? I mean, how would you implement such a system to be balanced between that heavy regulation and that and that low regulation climate, where we're getting great innovation, but we're also protecting our citizens and making sure that everything being rolled out is as safe as we can
1: expect it to be. Well, so that's the challenge, and and my foray into that is to yeah. say that we should be thinking about crashworthiness. Right? Okay, um, and that that at least. It's not going to be perfect, but it provides better guidance than what we have currently. Sure. Right? And you know, and I welcome further you know iterations on that idea or on other ideas. Um, I think this is a conversation that we're having. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the the first cut has been um, not satisfying uh, because uh, it hasn't actually answered the questions. Right? Mm-hmm. So you have people who say, well, it should be. Um, the manufacturer should always pay. and you have other people saying the manufacturer should never pay. And then you have a third group that's saying, well, let's just wait and see. right The tort system will figure this out. And I don't think it has, and I don't think it will, unless we take um, a strategic approach to this, uh, you know until we sort of uh, evolve the way that we think about software. Um, and the crashworthy framework is that idea is one of those ideas. Sure. How do we think differently about software? We had the same problem with cars, actually. Right? In the 1920s all the way through the 1950s, it was this idea that we cannot make a crash-proof car. It's just impossible. Right. What do you want? You know, The automaker said, what do you want us to do? We can't insure all of society. Right? We can't just pay for every accident. Uh, and so the courts agreed. And the courts went along with this for a long time. It was the big three or big four automakers. And they held a lot of cultural clout. Um, and the court said, you're right. Cars are just so great that We don't want to kill the the goose laying golden egg, right? Right. Um, And then came Ralph Nader um, and others who said, this is ridiculous, right? The number of deaths, the number of casualties, uh, and the way that people are dying is just so terrible. uh, We have to fix this. And they came up with this crash-worthy doctrine uh, for for traditional uh, automobiles. And the idea there was that you have a first collision and you have a second collision. The first collision is the car hits a tree or it hits another car, um, and then the second collision is everything that happens after that. Right. So from a physics standpoint, um, the car stops moving, but everything inside the car keeps moving, right, because of momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when you have the driver and the passengers hitting the dashboard or the windshield or. Um, the steering column, right, and they're being injured because of that second collision, not be necessarily because of the first collision. Right. So there's a temporal division, but it's all connected incident, right? That's right. And so, can the, if the even if the car manufacturers can't control driver behavior, they can't prevent people from driving recklessly, or they can't prevent uh, a tree from being in the in the you know side of the road when the car happens to hit the right. out of the tree. Um, but what they can do is they can des- redesign the interior of the car to be safer. They can build safety belts. Um, they can they can you know ha- install airbags. They can do other things uh, that will make the interior of the car safer. Um, that will make the second collision less fatal. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the same concept uh, that I want to import over to, to code. And it's been very effective in the in the traditional automobile context. Right. Right. We do have a reduction in fatalities. We do have a reduction in uh, severe injuries, um, even as Americans have been driving more and more and more each year. Mm -hmm.
0: And so what level of government, I mean, it seems to me like the only level of government that could effectively roll out such a, again, I don't want to call it a reform, but such a system, right, um, that could construct and implement and execute would be the federal government. Is that kind of your thought as well? Or do you think this could be a state-by-state thing? Or what's what's your idea?
1: So that's a great question, right? Mm -hmm. Who is responsible for implementing the system? Right. Uh, and my answer would be, it ha- has to happen at. It could happen at all levels. Right? Mm. So, tort law is a state by state. Uh, it, it's it's you know it happens in state courts. Right. Right. So, um, you know, an accident happens. You sue in state court, um, and it's up to the state courts to then decide whether or not they're going to adopt this approach as opposed to some other approach, or whether they're going to dismiss the case entirely because they say um, this is not a question that we know how to answer. Mm-hmm. Um, The federal government can get involved as well if it chooses to, and we have um, uh, NHTSA, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, um, that has been looking at this question, Mm -hmm. asking whether it should get involved or not. But actually, uh, historically, the authority of NHTSA has been relatively weak. Uh, Its authority has been limited to product recalls, and that's a function of political will. Um, And so you have things like the Takata airbag recall, right? Um, That's been the main uh, domain of NHTSA. Um, You could imagine the federal government getting involved in other ways, right? So Congress could pass legislation. Sure. Just like the individual state legislatures could Could. pass legislation. So I'm not ruling any of that out, but we still need some standard as to what that rule should be. Like a regulating agency or...? I don't mean... Who should do it? I okay. mean, so let's suppose the federal government or let's suppose the state government decides it wants to move forward with this. Mm-hmm. What's the test? What's right. the rule that it's going to promulgate? Uh, and if you do it based on crash prevention, it's going to be the same problem all over and again. And this
0: is, again, where you advocate for that crashworthiness. Right? That's right? That's okay. right. So um, I keep
1: hitting that theme because I...
0: No, no, it's a great theme, and it's actually it's it's something that I don't think a lot of people are exploring in this area, so it's really interesting is this idea of we're not going to get something that's foolproof, but what is what is reasonable? What should we be expecting? Um, and, and I think it's, it's interesting. So I'm kind of wondering, we hit on this before a little bit where we were talking about you know, traditionally people would maybe hold the driver responsible under a negligence theory or hold the car manufacturer uh, responsible under a product liability theory. Who do you think is gonna carry insurance with these autonomous vehicles? Is it going to be the passenger, like I own this car, so I need insurance for what it does? Or is it going to be the manufacturer? Or is it gonna be the software developer? I'm just kind of curious what you think is going to be the evolution of the current car insurance scheme that we have in place.
1: So I think insurance is a red herring. Okay. Um, A lot of people who, in the commentary, Mm -hmm. insurance is often used as a kind of deus ex machina. They're gonna swoop in and save the day because we don't know the answer, but surely they know how to price this. Right. right? There's a lot of confidence that insurance knows how to price things, Um, and that's true, right? But they also know that if it's if the price is too high, they're getting out. Right. Um, You know, even in the headlines recently, we've seen um, insurers canceling policies for California uh, landowners. You know, for fire insurance, Mm -hmm. we see um, insurers get out of the market for flood insurance. Sure. and in the 80s, when tort liability was getting out of control, um, quote-unquote, uh, you saw the insurers get out of that business, too. And you have quotes from insurance uh, executives saying, you know, we can insure a lot of things, but we can't insure for this kind of uncertainty, right? this kind of legal uncertainty. Mm-hmm. You, you're seeing this also in the cyber insurance context. Um, so there are a lot of insurers... Very interested in this space, going to all the conferences, being very sophisticated about the technology, um, and they've started to experiment with cyber liability insurance policies. But what you're seeing is um, they're very limited mm-hmm. um, they usually cover uh, things like data loss or um, you know the costs of uh, recovery of computer hardware equipment and, and they disclaim all kinds of other things um, so they're they're interested in getting into this space. Uh, but it's a very tentative interest um, so far. Uh, the other thing I'll say is that the insurers are not going to pay for this, right? The insurers are a way of spreading the risk, but who's going to pay for it ultimately? It's someone else, right? It's the policyholders. Exactly. Um, and if the insurers are losing money on this, they're not going to they're not going to continue the policy.
0: But surely, I mean, you know a huge part of any insurance company is, is home insurance, and car insurance. Well, traditionally, at least, right? And surely to, to your point, they're, they're not going to do something that doesn't make financial sense, but it's it's a pretty radical idea to say that, you know, insurers are going to get out of insuring cars. Right. So at some level, there's going to have to be some policyholder. And I'm just I'm just wondering what you think that interplay is going to be. Is there going to be multiple policyholders for one car, such as the manufacturer, the software developer and the owner? Or do you think it's going to be more of, you know, as a manufacturer of these cars, since it's our software, we're taking on the liability from the software producer that gives it to us that we put in our cars?
1: So the the who holds insurance question is a secondary question. Mm -hmm. And the primary question is who has legal liability? Okay. You first have to answer who's responsible for paying, and then the insurance companies can go to that person or that entity and say, hey, would you like to take some insurance out?
0: And who do you think in, oh, sorry. go
1: for it. In the traditional automotive context, because drivers have been held to be responsible, mm-hmm. right? If you get into an accident, you're the one responsible, you're left holding the bill, it's not the car manufacturer. Um, so that's why the drivers have had to have first party and third party insurance. With software, we don't know what the answer is. Right? Are courts going to hold software companies liable? Mm-hmm. They haven't
0: yet. And I guess that's what I'm asking is I'm right. saying like, based on you know your research and, and all your knowledge in this field, who do you think the court is going to hold responsible? Do you think it's going to be the manufacturer? Do you think it's going to be the software developer? Or do you think it's going to be the consumer? Because I think that's the question, like you said, that we really care about. The insurance is just kind of a conduit to get there. But I'm just wondering, you know, if, if you're reading the tea leaves, if you had to guess, what do you think it'll be?
1: So if courts were to continue on in the way they do, uh, and they have no answer, and software manufacturers are not going to be li- liable. Right. Then all the burden falls on the victims, right? The mm-hmm. passengers. And so you have things like life insurance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, tr- you know, even traditional first-party insurance, uh, casualty insurance, right? Sure. So you could have continue to have policies like that. If, on the other hand, they adopt a scheme like the one that I'm proposing, where some of the liability does fall on on the manufacturers, but mm-hmm. you give courts a way to to Throw some of that liability onto right. software manufacturers. Then you'll see some of the uh, these driverless autonomous vehicle manufacturers start to carry insurance. So just like um, you know corporations that carry some risk, they they carry insurance, and the insurers carry reinsurance. You might have that entire scheme, uh, but that starts with first figuring out how to assign liability. Okay. It's not that the insurers are going to figure that out. Right. It's the courts that'll figure that out. And then the insurance uh, will come second. Industry will follow. Okay. That's right,
0: Okay. And so, uh, before, and I know you've got a lot of commitments, so I don't want to keep you long. But before you get out of here, I've got to kind of dig into this data privacy, because I know that's a, a huge interest of yours, right? That's right. And and so, the thing I'm interested in is these autonomous vehicles that are kind of hitting the road now. They've got all these cameras, they've got all these sensors. They're gathering a ton of data. And and the thing I'm wondering is, how do you imagine that? that data is going to be you know, safely protected? Um, the, the things that, you know, these these cars will be able to record me, you know, I could be committing a crime on the sidewalk. Who's gonna have access to that data? How is the data going to get decent, disseminated? How are we going to protect it?
1: Have you given any thought to that kind of thing? So data privacy is a really tough problem, uh, and especially in the US, because we don't have a systematic way of thinking about d- data privacy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, it tends to be very sector specific. Right? So if you have health data, if you have educational data, um, it's not done on a basis of well, all data. Right? So there's two questions you want to ask. One is who owns the autonomous vehicle, right? Who owns the data um, or the you know, the generator of the data? Um, and second, what is the data, right? And you might think of um, and then also, who's receiving the data? So you you want to think of this in terms of uh, four categories. I think, uh, one is collection, second is storage, third is use, and fourth is disposal. Mm-hmm. So on the collection side, who's collecting it? Who owns that data? Um, it could be private companies that are collecting that data for maintenance purposes. Sure. Um, it could be that they're collecting data because, you know, it's for a government service such as 911, um, locational mm-hmm. uh, data. Uh, it could be other reasons, right? It could be that the government has got, received a, uh, a warrant, has obtained a warrant, right? Uh, and they now want to monitor a suspect. Well, and so how would collection differentiate
0: whenever, let's say I'm getting into an autonomous ride-sharing uh, car, right? So clearly the ride-sharing company owns that car and they're the ones collecting the data. First, let's say I own my own autonomous vehicle. Well, am I collecting the data or is the autonomous vehicle manufacturer collecting the data to help the neural network improve itself, which is helping me, but you know, how, how does that interplay work? Yeah, it's very uncomfortable.
1: It is, it is, yeah. Um, this is one of those unanswered questions, right? And okay. a lot of scholars, a lot of privacy scholars are looking at this question mm-hmm. um, that have different answers. Right. Um, but generally, uh, the companies want to claim that data is theirs okay and then of course you have the you know consumers and the public that says well that's our data right? and Europe has a different vision of that mm-hmm. um, they just passed the, this GDPR general data protection um, regulation uh, so there's a whole body of law in the US though that has developed that's very specialized for cars mm-hmm. so you think about uh, Jay Z rapping about <laughs> being stopped in his car, right? Absolutely. Uh, you know, having his rights and knowing his rights. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, when can the police search the trunk versus the glove, glove compartment? compartment. Yeah. Um, so there's a whole set of law that's developed around cars because we treat cars like an extension of our home. Sure.
0: There's an, an innate sense of privacy, right? Right. You have this entitlement to or right to privacy in your car the same way you might in your home.
1: Right. So I was talking, um, when I was at a conference uh, where a representative from the mayor's office of Boston was there, and he talked about how when they were, you know, getting rid of parking spots, they to their surprise, there was a huge outcry because people were using those parking spots um, with their cars as additional storage, right? And so if you take away those parking spots, now they no longer have places to put their stuff, uh, and that was something that they hadn't even hadn't even crossed their minds. Right. So they had to go out and talk to people before they could figure that out. Um, so. With autonomous vehicles, it's this new kind of thing where it's both kind of your car, Mm -hmm. but kind of not. It's kind of like your computer, but kind of not. Right. Uh, And so we have to develop a new set of rules about this.
0: And that's what's tough, right? You know, I think about with my phone. I, I have an iPhone. I don't expect that Apple would say the data on that phone is their data, right? I'm using their phone to collect it um but I, I wouldn't i mean i would hope that they wouldn't tell me that my text messages my phone calls that's all theirs uh, and i think it's gonna be hard to kind of navigate whenever you know if i buy a car and they say well all the information we've gathered from your lidar your radar you know, sensors cameras things like that that's all our data well that data could be pretty incriminating for not just pedestrians maybe
1: even for me and, and how do you navigate that I, th- I think it's gonna be a really tough challenge yeah, well, now you're getting a sense of the scope of the problem, right? right. So those app manufacturers mm-hmm. are collecting data all the time, and they do claim it as theirs. Right? Mm-hmm. So Facebook, you know, why do they know so much about right. you? Why does Uber know so much about you? Right? They are collecting that data from your phone. Now, it's a different story when it's the government that wants to collect data from you. right? So the Supreme Court recently had a ruling about uh, it was Riley versus California, where they said your phone is actually private. And that the government needs to get a warrant before they can search your phone, before they can unlock or open your phone. Um, That was not obvious, right? Right. It it seems like the right outcome. Sure. But it could have gone the other way. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're starting to. So those are the kinds of questions that we want to figure out with autonomous vehicles. Is the autonomous vehicle really your data? Mm -hmm. Um, Is it? Is that data somehow protected? Um, Or is it like public data, you're walking outside on the sidewalk, uh, and someone can take a picture of you, can surveil you, can follow you, um, and it's not really a violation of your privacy, at least not in a legal sense.
0: And so who's who's in charge of figuring that out? Uh,
1: Courts? Yeah, is that that
0: just it? I mean, are are there any, I guess what I'm wondering is, are there any regulatory bodies in data privacy that are specifically looking at addressing this? Or are we just leaving it up to, hey, someday this is going to come in front of a court and we hope they get it right?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, again, it's a it's a mix, right? So legislatures could pass rules. Now they sure. haven't, right? They haven't really taken much action except in a few spots, right? So um, video rentals was an example where Congress got really upset um, and they passed a, a, a law. Uh, maybe they'll get outraged about, you know, this problem, but um, you know, it's not really on their radar right now, actually. Um, so I'm actually going to go talk. With the Ohio House of Representatives, um, mm-hmm. they're holding a set of meetings and writing a report about autonomous vehicles because they're suddenly interested in this question. Um, w- but first, they need to understand what is the technology, right? Um, what are the issues, right? Um, they want to be educated about this, uh, and so you know, I'm going to have a conversation there, uh, along with a lot of other interested parties, mm-hmm. um, to say here are the here are the issues you you need to be concerned about, right? Um, what kinds of data need to be collected? Is it safety data? Is it just, you know, incidental data that the company would like to have but doesn't need to have, um, or is it other kinds of essential data? Um, the whole host of issues um, surrounding that. Anyway, so so then you get to the collection, and we've only talked about collection right, so yeah, far. Right, yeah, we haven't even progressed yeah. to the other three. Storage yeah. is another issue, right? Are you encrypting it? Or are you keeping it safe? Are you preventing access? Um, uh, you know, there's a, there's a case where a hotel was... Um, holding data or storing data in clear mm-hmm. uh, without encryption, and they were fined by the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, this is the Wyndham Hotel case. Okay. Um, and so is that, you know, what are the obligations um, that a data provider or data um, uh, repository has toward the, the people who have some ownership of that data or some connection to that data? Mm-hmm. Um, Jack Balkin at Yale has a piece out called "Information Fiduciaries" that maybe we should hold these uh, repository or these companies to a higher duty mm-hmm. to protect your data. Um, it's a, it's a neat idea. We'll see if it goes anywhere. Um, and so, there, and, and what other kinds of protections do um, you know in terms of cybersecurity, for instance, do uh, these uh, companies owe uh, to protect the data uh, from from those who? Shouldn't have access. So a third category is use, mm-hmm. right? Um, and here the question is, uh, you know, you collect it for one purpose, and are you using it for an inconsistent purpose? Right? Okay. So Helen Nissenbaum has a piece about contextual, uh, has a book about contextual integrity, um, that uh, if you that you should respect the context in which the data is collected and and you know, understood to be uh, to be used to be approved for so for instance if you give data to Facebook sure uh, did you know that it was going to be used to for an advertisement right? did you know that if your picture if you've uploaded a picture that it's going to show up on a third- party advertisement um, these are the kinds of things where if it feels too off right, mm-hmm. context is violated uh, maybe there's a, a bigger problem now again this is just a theory right it's just sure. it, in an academic theory um, but these are the kinds of questions that we want to be asking, right? Another example, real-world example, is police uh, DNA databases, right? It's one thing to collect it, and they say we're just collecting this for identification purposes, but now we're starting to see uh, it being used mm-hmm. to identify, um, you know, long lost, you know, cold cases, mm-hmm. right? um, or to identify siblings who didn't submit their own data, right? So the genetic data is sure. close enough that you can now identify um, relatives. Um, and so is that the appropriate context in which the data was originally collected and now is being used? And so in the autonomous vehicle context, right, right. you could say, well, we're just collecting um, ambient data. To improve
0: the neural network, to improve the functionability of our cars.
1: Right, Right. but then let's suppose you say, well, the government says, well, this would be really useful data for detecting gunshots, or for detecting uh, what happened at the scene of a crime, right. Right? sort of the way that closed circuit TV uh, data is used. Sure. And is that an appropriate use of the data that was collected for one purpose, and now it's being used for a different purpose? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and should there be disclosures about that, or should there be something more, right should there be a default rule about how that data is and can be used? Mm-hmm. Um, or you know, is it just a kind of a you know, free for all.
0: <laughs> right. Like it's our data, it's your data, and you can do whatever you want with it, versus this is the data that, in this specific sense, is ours, and we're going to use it for this reason, but in other ways, we're not allowed to touch it.
1: Yeah. Another um, debate that's happening right now, uh, a live debate, is about accountable algorithms, explainability, sometimes also used uh, provenance. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what when something goes wrong, can you figure out what happened? Um, or if there's a decision that was made, can you understand? Uh, why that decision was made. And a lot of the machine learning algorithms don't tell you, right? So this is one of the puzzles of machine learning. Why does it, especially deep learning, why does it work as well as it does? You know, is it just results-based or do you want to know exactly why uh, this decision was reached? Um, So in that sense, is the data, you know, do you have to collect certain data? Do you have to use that data um, to provide an explanation um, or is that not the responsibility of the software manufacturers? Mm-hmm. So that's that's the on the use angle. Um, there are a number of interesting questions. Uh, probably the most interesting questions, um, but right. but not the only questions. Right. The last category is disposal. And this is an interesting question because we often tend to think data is forever. Mm-hmm. Once it's collected, it's on you know on the internet. Uh, As you know, my
0: grandma says, it's in the cloud. It's right? in the cloud, in the cloud right? forever.
1: And, and then, you know, we have all kinds of redundancies so that we don't lose those precious family pictures. Right? Exactly. Uh, and that's been a great achievement, actually. I mean, I've lost <laughs> lots of pictures in the in my day. Um, but actually, it turns out that we do want to be careful about how long data is is stored or what ways we want to degrade data. Um, there's a, in Europe, there's a concept called the right to be forgotten, right? Uh, that Certain kinds of data we don't want to keep around forever. Sure. What might that data be, right? What are the reasons that we might want to delete data? Um, who gets to decide, right? What's the process? Um, when someone dies, uh, is their social media account live forever, or at some point does it kind of go away? Right. Uh, Facebook had to make a decision about that, right? They have a policy for how you, tr- you know, turn a page into a memorial page, mm-hmm. um, and so there's a lot more to be mined here. Um, you know, And whose data is that, right? It's kind of like writing a memoir. Is it your data or is it someone else's data? Uh, and the same might be true of data that you want to delete. One person might want to delete it, but another person wants to keep it. So who gets to decide? Mm.
0: And so, you know, again, uh, just trying to be respectful of your time and get a couple more good questions in while we have you. What do you think about people's fears of um, kind of hacking the autonomous vehicles, right? Uh, you hear that a lot. Um, I'm worried that, you know, my vehicle is going to get hacked and it's going to take me somewhere else. I'm going to get hacked and they're going to be able to spy on me. I mean, what are your thoughts on that as someone who's an expert in data privacy?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely a, a rational fear. Um, and I think you need to have a play, plan in place mm-hmm. right, to, uh, for fault detection, mitigation. What's going to happen? How do you know that you've been hacked? What do you do in response? I actually have a, an interesting story about this, which is that <laughs> uh, back in the day, uh, before I had a smartphone, um, I was using Zipcar. Right. And I got lost in New Jersey, right? mm-hmm. so if I had I kept calling to extend my time on Zipcar because I was still lost and I, I needed another thirty minutes to find. You can pull out maps on your phone and I had no it, right? maps. Yeah. Right? I didn't have a smartphone, uh, and I was completely lost uh, and kept extending the time. But then at some point, it, the car just shut down in the middle of the road was while you were driving while or? I was driving it just shut down and you know luckily I wasn't going that fast sure uh, but it wasn't responding and I had no idea what what was
0: what the steering was wrong I was
1: just no the car just shut off
0: oh my right? gosh well, okay
1: and uh, I didn't know what to do I didn't know what neighborhood I was in it looked a little sketchy I mean I, it was like I said I was lost yeah um I didn't know if I should go out and check the, the hood yeah uh, the engine yeah um, I didn't know what to do at least and were... and I'll add one more thing my phone was out of batteries
0: Wow this is the makings of a horror film that's right uh,
1: okay now luckily I, I you know some very nice people stopped by mm-hmm. allowed me to use the phone their phone to call Zipcar, and it turned out that it had just remotely shut off and all I needed to do was to reactivate uh, the sensor using my unlock zip card mm-hmm um, So somehow they had decided I had renewed my time too long uh, and that I was no longer authorized unless I verified that I was still the driver. Um, That's kind of scary, right? Absolutely. I had no idea what was going on. Um, And this could have been the, luckily it was the company, but it could have been someone, a third party that was untrustworthy. Sure. Uh, So the the very next day I ordered a smartphone. Yeah. And, uh, you know, with with maps and everything. Right. Uh, But... uh, but I think that's still a real fear, a real risk, right. that, um, that your car will stop working or will respond in some uh, unexpected way, uh, and that as a passive passenger who doesn't mm-hmm. have control of the car, you're subject to the whims of the programmer or some other uh, person who's not there on site. Right. So that's... You know maybe you have to have a physical override right a big red red button that says pull over um i don't know what the answer is but i think that this is something that the companies need to be thinking about of course right um what the companies seem to have come up with instead um is remote control driving right so that's companies
0: like phantom auto right they can remote into the car and kind of take care of that first mile last mile problem things like
1: that you know i I have a great um xkcd um Mm -hmm. Quote, which is that uh, you know this is comic right xkcd yeah. um, uh, it says so much of AI is just figuring out ways to offload work onto random strangers <laughs> which is absolutely true right? right we say well AI gets us 80% of the way and the last 20% well we'll figure out with strangers right we'll just, right. Ha- we'll just outsource it outsource it to cheap labor
0: someone else will do it for me yeah,
1: yeah. and now we solve the AI problem right. uh, but the problem with remote control is that you're creating a cybersecurity risk mm. just by allowing that network connection to exist. Allowing the car to be controlled remotely means anyone with a network connection could potentially access the car too and also access all the same controls. Um, And so you this is a solution that creates additional problems.
0: Sure, it's it's a it's something that we're allowing because we have this one problem we're looking at now and we're not even seeing that this could create, you know,
1: five more down the road. Right, right. Um, And so uh, you need to have some kind of idea of how to deal with that risk, um, and, and I don't know what the answer is there. Mm-hmm. You could have a, a separate protocol that's not connected to the internet, so some kind of sandboxing. Right? Sure. Maybe that's the answer. Um, I know that the there's been some uh, interest in V to V, or um, you know V to right? I, right. vehicle to vehicle or vehicle to infrastructure, mm-hmm. um, and that there's a, you know different. Bandwidths within the spectrum that are being reserved for that. I don't think that this is the purpose, right. um, but you can imagine Maybe so we don't connect it to the, the general internet right? We you have a, a sandbox for a special a, internet for this kind of, of traffic, yeah. right? Um, uh, maybe less anonymity might help. I have a paper about an older paper about that right that mm-hmm. um, The anonymity is great for some things, but maybe not for all things sure um, and then you know Setting aside the actual risks, there's a whole another problem with just perceived risk. Right? So MIT Age Lab has been doing some, you know, really fascinating studies of consumer acceptance of driverless technologies. Yeah. Um, and of course, they find, you know, not not surprisingly, that the older the population is, the more fearful they are of this kind of technology, and the less willing they are to use. Sure. It. Um, young people are they say well sure why not and older people say, I right. would never give up my car right. um, that's you know, t- too attached to my identity or, or you know, a whole host of other reasons
0: younger people are also the same generation who are okay with people delivering their food to them whereas older generations are you know more skeptical of, I can't use Grubhub or Uber or, or they do something to my food so it, it's not surprising but I mean how are they helping to navigate
1: that well, well first I guess you study and say well what are the reasons that people are you know, reluctant to use this technology mm-hmm. um, but another part of it would be to then, you know, show why the technology is trustworthy, sure. uh, what measures are being taken, uh, what, you know, just helping it to educate the consumers, right? Um, so, I think consumer education is a part of this. Um, warnings, um, giving people control over the technology, uh, that can also help. Uh, and so, you know, how? Do, and so, when we talk about cars being hacked or people being afraid of cars being hacked that's part of the story too mm-hmm. it's not just about cars being hacked it's about also the fear that cars will be hacked
0: right just the perception
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to mention one more thing which is that Paul ohm has a, an older piece called the myth of the super user which is he's a fantastic writer mm-hmm. um, and he, he sort of ridicules this idea that um, that hackers are going to take over everything And he shows all these examples where a lot of the hacking is actually very low-tech. Some guy calling up the phone um, and getting information the old-fashioned way. It's a human hacking. It's a human hacking, right? social hacking, Mm -hmm. um, rather than a technological hacking. Now, that's not to say there isn't plenty of the other kind of hacking, uh, but just that it's an overblown risk. um, That's at least his perspective, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, And that um, we need to be careful of these other kinds of threat models, uh, not just treat you know cyber hacking as as some kind of special category
0: right something that's never happened before when we've already kind of experienced the social hacking you're talking about and
1: right and that those are the other those are the you know those are the avenues that we should be uh, careful about too
0: actually. well professor troy brian thank you so much for your time this is awesome i feel like uh, i learned a lot i'm sure our, our listeners will have learned a lot and i hope we can do this again soon sometime
1: yeah thanks very much for having me
0: That'll do it for today's episode of Driverless. As always, you can reach out to us on Twitter at at underscore driverless or email us at driverless at tuckerless.com. Thanks as always for listening and talk to you soon.